what we believe we believe. Why do I believe Jesus Christ to be the way, the truth, and the life? You want to be a Christian. You want to live the Christian life. But you've never learned how to live the Christian life. Well, thank you for coming this morning as a abbreviated group, but I think because it's some of the stuff we've got accustomed to, but it is great to be back together and see you in my so happy to see that. I am glad that I don't have to make a video for today. <laughs> Those aren't nearly as much fun as they are to watch. <laughs> John Nichols shared last week talking about facing the world of life, talking about courage or fear, and finding common Christ really good things to, um, to consider every day. Um, so I'm talking about today, I think maybe piggybacks off that. I won't be talking about all the same things he did, but uh, piggybacks that off a little bit. Uh, we should start in prayer and uh, just praise God. Father God, we thank you so much for this chance, the time that we have to get together, to worship as a family, to gather as a family, to uh, rebuild those connections that have been strained a little bit over the, the experience that we've had over the last year and a half or longer. I pray that today you would be speaking your word, that uh, I am just, just a vessel, uh, a sinful man who's trying to understand what it is you say in the Bible. We pray that it, it would be your word that is spoken. Pray that uh, we would open our ears and give us discernment, Lord God, that we would, would hear your voice in Scripture. We pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So today I'm taking my Scripture from the story of the temptation of Christ, uh, mostly from Matthew 4, but uh, it is found in, in uh, Mark and Luke as well, so there'll be some overlap. And um, I'm going to be speaking next week as well, so I decided why not do a series? Because, I don't know, why not? So today will be the first part. I'm going to be talking about the value of Scripture. Um, and if you want to give today's sort of a, a title, you can call it uh, The Weapons and Worship. And we'll see how that works out in, in our Scripture today. And oftentimes we hear people complain they don't hear the voice of God. And uh, as I was doing my, my study, came across one gentleman who said, if you want to hear God's voice, then read your Bible out loud. Uh, and then you're going to hear what he has to say to you. So let's take that to heart. So let's read some scripture and hear the, the voice of God. Immediately, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned to the Jordan or returned from the Jordan, and was impelled by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And he ate nothing during those days, and after he had uh, fasted for forty days and forty nights, being tempted by the devil, he became hungry. So we'll talk about this first temptation, this uh, appeal to the lust of the flesh. And the devil came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And I think what Satan is saying here is actually a bit of a kindness. At least it seems to be a kindness, because there's no doubt after 40 days that Jesus would have been 
very weak and very hungry. And the adversary has perfect timing, and he only comes when our guard is down. And it's no different than what Jesus was experiencing. Now listen to the phrase that Satan uses. He says, if you are the Son of God. So Satan is up to his old habits. I and mean, if we've read through the story of uh, uh, Adam and Eve, come in and talk to them and say, you know, did God really say? Well, here now he's saying, if you really are the Son of God, if you are who you say you are. He says, look, Jesus, if you were born in a stable, you're the Son of God. And if you were hurried off to Egypt, because you were afraid of Herod, well, you know, you're the Son of God. And you were the son of a carpenter. He grew up in a little shack in a despicable town of Galilee and spent 30 years there, but you're the son of God, all right. And maybe you're claiming some sort of vain confidence that you're the son of God. And, well, you know that thing that just happened where you got baptized, where you're, you're holding on to this illusion where a voice spoke out of heaven. And that's all fine and good, but your days of security should be over by now because people who know who you are. Son of God. So why do you linger in this desert, wandering around these craggy rocks, unhonored, unattended, unpitied, ready to starve for the lack of food? Is that really befitting the Son of God? So at the bidding of the Son of God, it would be easy for you to turn these stones into bread. In just a moment, you can have an abundant feast. But do you hear what Satan's doing here? He's mocking Christ. And everything that he's doing is a tap on the humanity of Christ. And Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So Jesus did not silently disagree with Satan. He answered him, and he answered him from the word of God. He answered him from Scripture. So by relying on the power and the truth of God's word, Jesus was willing to fight his battle as a man. He became like us, and he fought like we could fight. And he could easily have rebuked Satan, and he could have thrown him into another galaxy or whatever you want to think, and he didn't. Jesus resisted him in a way that we can imitate, and in a way that we can identify. The apologist R.C. Sproul once says the scriptures are absolutely key in the process by which the Spirit gives and strengthens the faith of Christians. So in times of temptation, where do you draw your strength? Psalms 119 verse 11 says, Your word I have treasured in my heart, that I may not sin against you. But not all temptation is obvious. And temptation requires discernment. Pastor John MacArthur said this, Modern evangelicalism is enamored with psychology of self-esteem. It has produced a generation of believers so self-absorbed they cannot be discerned. People aren't even interested in discernment. Their spiritual focus is on self and getting their own felt needs met. And that speaks to what we read in Ephesians chapter 5, where it says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things the wrath of God comes upon sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partners with him. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are in the light of God. Then we come to the second temptation. And this is a, an appeal to the pride of life. And we continue in Scripture. Then the devil 
took him into Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. So there's a couple of things that we can take out of the scripture as well. First of all, Satan quotes scripture. And we can trust that the devil has memorized the Bible far better than you or I ever will. He knows a lot more about what's going on in there than, the, than you and I can understand. And he's an expert, but he takes it out of context. And he uses it to confuse and defeat the people that he's tempting. To quote another famous pastor, C.H. Spurgeon once said, Satan borrowed the Lord's weapon and said, It is written, but he did not use the sword lawfully. It was not in the nature of the false fiend to quote correctly, and he left out the, necess the necessary words in all thy ways. And thus he made the promise say in truth what it never suggested. And sadly, many are willing to believe anyone who quotes from the Bible today. I could pretty much say anything I wanted up here if I claimed to couch it in scriptures. And most will assume that I really am speaking from the Bible. So, if you picked up a bulletin this morning, there was a, a verse in the front. Does anybody know where that verse comes from? It comes from this passage in the temptation of Christ. But it's a quote from Satan. It's actually the words of Satan. But you can read those words and it can make you feel really good. You can have all kinds of things. But the quote's out of context. I'm sorry to pull that sentence. <laughs> it's important for each Christian to know the Bible for themselves and not be deceived by someone who quotes the Bible inaccurately or without correct application. The apologist Eliza Children said, What a telltale sign of a false gospel is a redefinition of terms. And we have redefiners today in our church. And there's a massive list. And I could go on naming names. People like Jen Hatmaker, Matthew Vines, Rob Bell, Brian McLaren. They redefine scripture sets. You know, in the Old Testament, God took the lives of two priests because they used an incense that was not prescribed for worship. And just because you feel like your worship is worship doesn't mean that it's acceptable to God. And your heart does not define worship. The Bible defines worship. But we'll come back to that later. The educator Cody Bachum said, The Lord told me is no substitute for the Bible says. And if your entire theology is God is love, or do not judge, you do not have biblical theology, you have Oprah, and your theology is false. The pastor J.C. Ryle wrote, It is neglect of the Bible which makes so many a prey to the first faulty, false teacher that they hear. And I had the very same experience when I was living in Calvary years ago. I was not making a lot of money, I couldn't make ends meet, I was scraping by and watching TV, and this guy came on named Creflo Dollar. And I never heard of this guy before, but man, he could speak. And he sounded so good. And he said, you know, if you just have a little bit more faith, God's going to heap some money on you. And I was like, all right, heap some money on me. <clears throat> and I didn't get it. 
But he was quoting scripture out of context. He was saying things that made him feel pretty good. The second thing that Satan does here is he tests Christ's pride. And he says, if you are who you say you are, prove it. But we get in a moment. But Jesus answered him and said, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to test. This is a warning to all of us not to demand something spectacular from God. And this is a warning to us against demanding God to prove his love or prove his concern for us. And if you're on Facebook, you will see people posting these memes all the time, saying that if you copy this and pass it on, you're going to get a healing, or you're going to get a blessing. You know, the repost this. But you're testing God. That's what you're doing. Remember, God has already given the ultimate demonstration of his love at the cross. He can do nothing more spectacular than what he did there. We come to the third temptation. There's two parts in this temptation. The first is an appeal to the lust of the eyes, and the second is a lure to misplaced worship. So again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this dominion and all this glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship before me. Which is the verse that we're from the whole We all want things that we don't have. I'd love to have a job to help you pay the bills. That would be fantastic. But for me to become jealous of the things that others have, or to engage in gambling or lottery for financial gain, is a sin. It is covetousness. The Bible says you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or desire your neighbor's house or his field or his servants, his oxen, donkey, or anything else that is your neighbor's. Consider what Satan is proposing here. He says, I will give you. <clears throat> so evidently, Satan has authority over this world and its governments. And the temptation that he is making here could not have been real unless there is some sense that Satan does possess the kingdoms of the world in all their glory. And notice, Jesus does not argue against the claim that Satan makes. So we come to the crux of what Satan truly desires in the very last sentence of what I read, where he says, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. So the lust of our eyes leads to this, misplaced worship. The notion of misplaced worship is most clearly understood in what we call the wearing of Saul's armor. So we all know the story of David and Goliath. And we know that it's a story where we learn about total reliance on God and victory. Because David's victory really was God's victory. Goliath came fighting with brute strength and dominating his enemies because of his size. And David came in relying on what he had learned Saul, King Saul, was chosen by God, but he strayed from God, and he offered his armor to David, which showed the rottenness of his heart. The first problem is that Saul did not care for religious instruction. In 1 Samuel 13 we read, Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, 
and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered them up. Saul disrespected the time that God had demanded of him, and he refused to be patient. Unfortunately, we treat the church very much the same way. And that's not just us, that's the whole Christian family treats the church the same way it seems. It's become a burden to us to spend time listening to the Word of God that is being preached. We want instead to get it over with and receive our blessing. The question is, is spending two hours at church every week really that difficult? Would you rather be entertained? It struck me that there's nothing in Scripture that says that heaven will be entertained. But I think I'd rather spend an eternity there than the option. So this leads us to our next problem, when we don't care about religious instruction. The second point is Saul took far too much instruction from cultural norms. He asserted his own will over the instruction of God. And he's not alone in that. If you read through the Old Testament, that happens over and over again. But in this instance, we read in Samuel 15 that God said, Smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. But Saul and the people spared King Agag and the best of the sheep, the best of the oxen, all the fatlings and the lambs. Everything was good. Saved, but they destroyed things that were vile and garbage. So just like Saul, we allow our temptations and our misplaced worship to assert cultural norms over the scriptural governance of the church. And this creates the apostate church. Tough things to talk about. And again, we are being lied to by the redefiners of this age, the smooth voice of the deceiver. We listen to the teaching of these pastors who tickle our ears and twist scripture, making us feel good. But how can you know if you're being deceived if you don't spend time in the Bible? The lecturer Dustin Bailey has written, Tickling ears will get you big crowds and approving accolades. It'll get you cultural popularity, but preaching the word will get you hardship, suffering, rejection. However, regardless of the outcome, preach the word. I spent the majority of my life in what was called a point time, the General Conference in Manics. And they've changed their name now to Manic Church Canada. And I've watched them slowly start dancing around this calf of cultural relevancy. And they dial down the preaching of God's word and they ramp up entertainment. It's a tough thing to watch. There's a lot of people that I know in that church that I love. There's a lot of leaders in that church who can't stand to see what's going on in there. But it's popular, isn't it? And I love to play with the worship team on stage to use my gifts in whatever way God lets me do it. But sometimes you come to church and you want to look at me. You want to be fed and satisfied with Scripture. It's the same thing, really, that the Jews did over and over in the Old Testament. And we look at them and we laugh and we say, how could they be so ridiculous? They wanted to become like the culture around them. And all it did, all it did was leave them into trouble. 
We need to not accommodate the current displaced worship and cultural appropriation that we see. Because we are being led away from, from God. We're being led away from Scripture. And when we are tempted to go into battle, it requires us to use the weapon that we have been given. And our weapon is Scripture. Our weapon is the Word of God. In 2 Corinthians 10, it says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty to God, to the pulling down of fortifications and destroying counsels. And too often we think, how honored David must have felt that the king would clothe him in his very own armor. And was David tempted to go to battle wearing the king's armor? I think he was. You know, he even put it on and he walked around in the armor. But the difference is that David was able to discern that the armor would not help him. And the armor was a hindrance on how he knew how to fight. On how he knew how to use his weapon. And David did not want to use a new tool or a new kind of technique in order to win the battle. He trusted that God would do the work. And for his part, David relied on the training and the experience that he had coming into this situation. But that doesn't mean that we should reject training or reject preparation. We just need the right kind. In Proverbs 22, it says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. And this means we need to study the Bible. We need to study the Word of God and rely upon Scripture as our weapon. We need to learn to use our weapon effectively. We've all read about the armor of God in Ephesians 6. Remember these things where it says we gird up our loins with truth. We need to be prepared with the gospel of peace. We need to use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Hebrews 4, verse 12 says, For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, and it penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And don't forget what it says in 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 16, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. When we come back to the temptation of Christ, and Jesus answered Satan and said, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You see, Jesus replied with scripture again, and he commanded the devil to leave. In the same way, we can resist the devil and he will flee. That's what it says in the book of James. The Bible commentator John Trapp said, The word of God has the power in it to quail and quash Satan's temptations, far better than a wooden dagger, a leaden sword, or holy water, crossing grains, relics. It's not the sign of the cross, but the word of God that overthrows Satan. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left Jesus for an opportune time. And Jesus was with the wild beasts and angels, and they came to minister to him. Time alone with God is a very special time where we draw near to Him. But it can also be a time of intense temptation. Jesus was alone. He was fasting when He was tempted. You see, this time alone does not prevent temptation, but it will strengthen us on coming in. 
If you are consistently in the Word of God and in prayer, you will be forewarned and forearmed for standing against the schemes that Satan will bring against you. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said, Get your hearts quickened with the Word, go to it, and fetch fire. It's interesting. Jesus used two different sources of scriptures when he was ministering against Satan's attacks. The first was the book of Psalms. And many of us turn to Psalms in our time of need. It's the heart of David reflecting how he desired after God. And we find it very encouraging when we read through those words of David. But the second source that Jesus quotes is the book of Deuteronomy. It's a book of law. And I don't think we use those books so much. And when was the last time you quoted from Deuteronomy when you were needing encouragement? I'm going to guess probably not ever. The author, A.W. Pink, said you will derive far more benefit from a single verse of scripture read slowly and prayerfully and meditated upon than you will from reading ten chapters hurriedly. So next week I'll continue on, and I'm going to be looking at the life of Samson and the use of Scripture in our lives. To live in this world means that you will encounter temptation, and some, like the playwright Oscar Wilde, don't even try to fight it. He said, I can resist anything but temptation. Others want to be delivered from, the, from their temptation, but they would like to keep in touch with it from time to time. If we want to be godly people, we must learn to resist our temptations, and they will come to us at any time. Our weapon is scripture, wielded effectively, wielded effectively through practice. I will close with this reading from Joshua 1.8. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may careful to do according to what's written in it. And then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. I'd like to close in prayer. Just uh, the prayer that Solomon had over the temple when you're fit to it. It's a little paraphrase. Oh God, there is no one like you. You keep your promises and show ongoing love to those who live for you with all their hearts. You always keep the promises you make. And so listen to our prayers today, that our eyes will be open to you and your grace. Wherever you send us, hear our prayers and help us maintain our walk with you. Help us to always live in recognition of your holiness. And when we ask for forgiveness, please hear and forgive us. believe what we believe we believe.